Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Teosi Onwemina, and I'm excited to be on the show today because I have a very, 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 did I say very special guest, Dr. Julia Warren, and I'm, I, I'm just excited to have her on the show. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, I'm going to ask if you don't mind, introduce yourself to the audience, especially with regard to your role as a clinician scientist. Yeah, so I'm Julia Warren. I'm an assistant professor here at the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine, and I'm also an attending hematologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I see patients in the comprehensive bone marrow failure program and also have my research laboratory. My research lab focuses on how we make blood cells, also known as hematopoiesis. I love it. You know, Julia, one of the things you didn't mention is how accomplished you are. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody seems to, to miss that. Um, and maybe because we're kind of on the journey to believing that we're accomplished at all. I love you, that what? you said that. Yes. All right. So, so I, want, I want you to tell me about how you came to recognize and accept, or maybe you're still on the journey to accepting your role as a clinician scientist. What was a defining point in your career where you said, oh, I am? I love that question so much because I think when you do training, that's so dichotomous. Okay, this is your MD time. This is your PhD time. And ne'er the twain shall meet. Uh, when they're you know so separate feeling, at some point they do come together. I think for me, I had a moment in my intern year at, at St. Louis Children's Hospital. It's a pediatric intern. And there was a child with RSV outside my wheelhouse of, you know, what I've come to have expertise in. And we only give kind of prophylaxis treatment, prophylactic treatment for RSV to some infants and not to others. But other children really, small children can really suffer from RSV infection. So I went back to PubMed and I looked up what is happening in this space, this space that I know nothing about, what's happening in the RSV space. Is there an immunization that's really going to be able to be accessible to all children? Is this a reality? What are the barriers to this? And then we had to give journal clubs. A lot of time the journal club morning reports were more clinically focused. And I thought, forget this. I'm putting up a crystal structure. I'm putting up a ribbon diagram. I'm giving some history about why we haven't gotten there yet and what's being done to get there now. And even though it wasn't pipetting and it wasn't being in the lab, it was really one of the first moments where I thought, I'm using that part of my brain to think about patients that are right in front of me. And I'm so excited that 
very soon. That's what I get to do just all the time. I love it. Julia, it was almost like you were in rebellion in that moment. <laughs> I like, did have I, to say, yeah, I did yeah. have to say, bear with me. It's a ribbon diagram, but it's going to be okay. That, that's really it awesome. Was. That's really awesome. Because I mean, I think it, it is, you're, you know, you're correct. It, what a false dichotomy. I mean, we are one person. And to say that this is a time when you're a clinician and this is the time when you're a scientist is not real. And how amazing for you to just own that in your intern year and to say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going all in. That's so awesome. Yeah. Now, let me ask about like, what was the internal struggle to get to that moment? Because it sounds like you hesitated. It wasn't something you did automatically. To get to the moment of saying, I'm a physician, I'm a scientist, I am both. Yeah, it's right. Not a straight road to get there for sure. And we were just in a training where someone was talking about, you know, how you talk in a space where you might feel like this is the space where I'm the outsider. And so when you're doing your training, I really think you have those moments as, you know, for me doing MD, PhD combined training, sometimes I'd be in my med school classes and I think, wow, all my colleagues, they are just so good at sitting down and memorizing and they were really great pre-meds and you know, I was never that kind of a student. I wanted to know the pathway. I wanted to think about it. I thought memorization was a waste of time. And then during my PhD, you know, it was almost that you wanted to be taken seriously among your PhD colleagues. You didn't want other PhD students saying, oh, well, you're in the special program and they kind of make things easier for you. You know, they, they kind of help, help you get through your PhD and we got to go it on our own. You know, I wanted to be, I'm, well, I'm the same. My PhD is the same. You know, I'm, I'm working just as hard I'm trying just as hard as, let me just not talk about the fact that I'm an MD, PhD student. Let me try to put that MD part of me, bury it away. You know, maybe a, a great moment is if somebody doesn't even realize that I'm an MD, PhD student, I'm just one of them. And then you go back to, you know, your medical training and you, again, you don't want to be the outsider. You, you don't remember what a normal potassium is, right? You, you're all your other medical students just went straight through and they're so knowledgeable and they're really on top of their game and you're kind of scrambling to get caught up. So you almost don't want to talk about, oh, I took a break for four years. You want to say, how can I get as good as all these other students around me as quickly as possible? So yeah, I think it, it really took until that moment where it was, I don't have to hide that I'm a physician and I want to be a gosh darn good physician. And I, I'm a scientist. Like I can't turn that part of my brain off. I'm bringing it here to the hospital every day. So I love it. You speak to one challenge that I think people face in different spheres of life. It's like you're in the PhD space and you're feeling like an outsider, but you're also in the MD space and feeling like an outsider. So it's almost like you have to create your own space where you're just your whole person right there. And I, and I wonder, you know, you're, you're bringing it all together into one space because both spaces, at least individually, seem to reject you. That, that's hard. I wonder how you manage that. And I also wonder, where did you find those spaces that were more welcoming to your dichotomous personality, so to speak? Yeah, how I'm managing it or, or kind of working through it, I'd say it's probably still work in progress. It is one incredibly refreshing thing about working with children, especially with teenagers, is they can smell it when you're not being your authentic self. They can just tell us, you know, the teenagers, if you show up and if I would try to talk to a teenager about sports, 
they're going to know right away. I'm faking it. I don't know. I have no idea. To me, it's all sports ball. I can't tell you. And so I want to relate to my patients, but I'm going to find something else that we can relate about that is not whatever team is playing a sport right now because I truly have no idea about it. And it's and that I know that sounds like a funny example, but really working with teenagers, especially, I think really helps you to embrace who you are as and present your authentic self because they just do not tolerate it otherwise. They're not going to respect you. They're not going to want to listen to you when you tell them they have to take medications that make them feel sick, that they have to go through testing, that they have to go through inpatient admissions. They have to call you with fevers, you know, all these things. So I, I think that really is something that continues to help me remember to show up as my authentic self. And then as far as kind of spaces, places that really promote you being who you are as a physician scientist, in a way, I think it's almost a numbers game, having a lot of physician scientists around and having physician scientists who are doing really serious science and are incredible scientists first and foremost, but who you then work with clinically and you think you are an incredible clinician. You are an amazing doctor. You're top of this game too. And I think that being surrounded by that and just the sheer numbers of that at the institutions I've been at really, really helps. I really, really appreciate what you said about the thing about authenticity. And I love that you shared the story about the teenagers. Yes, <laughs> I think it's it's perfect because when you were talking about kind of being in these two spaces, in one space, you kind of have to adjust, right, to fit in. And the other space you have to as well. So it's almost like this feeling like you're always pretending to be someone that you're not. And I think if you want to speak to, you know, this whole thing, I did think about imposter syndrome. There's a sense that you're just not who you're supposed to be or it's you're not so in the right real. Place. Yes. And, and you, what you share about the teenagers helping you to be your authentic self. I, I think I, I wonder if that's not part of that, trying to like recognizing that you can only be yourself successfully. Trying to be someone else is very hard and probably is something we should abandon. As soon Absolutely. As we Do you want yeah. to speak some more to that? Well, and that pressure to feel that, you know, are you doing what you're doing? That pressure to feel, are you being who you're supposed to be right now? Are you enough physician? Are you enough scientist? Are you enough of both combined? Are you combining them well? Or what is your ratio of how things are going? It's a lot of pressure. And I do think that sometimes as women, we have a more critical lens on ourselves. And um, maybe that does come from, you know, we get criticized more, just to be honest. And uh, I don't know that it's fully internal or there are some external components to it too. And so I really think for me, there's moments where that, that cup feels a little emptier and you got to fill that cup back up. And so being somewhere where you can say to yourself, look, here's a talk by this incredible physician scientist woman. We just had somebody visiting, if I can name drop her, Ashley Steed from Washington University, just have so much immense respect for her and for the work she does and for the clinician she is and the scientist she is and kind of the person, she's like a wonderful person too. And so she was coming to give a talk here at campus. And I just thought, well, this is not in my research domain at all. But if my cup is feeling a little empty, I'm going to go fill that cup back up. I'm going to go hear from another female physician scientist who is out there 
hustling and making it work and crushing it and doing a great job. And so I think having the opportunity to, you know, just kind of tank back up and say, okay, great. Yes. Here's a person, some number of years ahead of me, if you will, in our prescribed trajectory, who is just making it all work and just doing a fabulous job. I love it. I love what you talk about the concept of filling your own tank, right? I think that many times we abdicate that responsibility to someone else and they don't even do a good job of it. And so for you to say, this is what I need and I'm going to go do that. And, and, and you fill your own tank and at the end you, you feel satisfied and fulfilled because you did that. You took that step for yourself. And I just wonder how many of us do that enough and, and, and whether we're encouraged to do that. Because you, you speak about community and the power of community and being surrounded by people who are doing what you want to do. But even within that community, there are gaps. And you're going out and finding what you need and filling your own cup, which allows you to keep being successful. Yeah. And so much, so much of the time, the programming that, I, that we get offered as, especially as female physician scientists is, you know, how to have a work-life balance, I think is just this theme that's, it's very important, but it's almost that we get told more that this is important for us. It's not important for everybody. It's really important for women. We have to figure out how to have work-life balance. We have to figure out how to, you know, be satisfied with our work time and our family time. And, and, and we've got to figure out that balance. And here's a seminar on how to accomplish that. And, you know, really we have to figure out how to be great physicians and we have to figure out how to be great scientists. And, you know, that's a, that's a universal problem that a physician scientist has. And I don't think we all get sort of equally pressured to also have a nice life, <laughs> figure all of that out. So yeah, for me, I, I just want to see other women out there crushing it. And there's a lot of great examples around me. That's awesome. And you are a great example yourself. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I, I want to, you know, you, you touch on a lot of things that I feel like we should talk about, but we're going to talk about it. Actually, maybe this is a good time though. How, how do we keep women, how do we keep trainees in general, but especially women committed to the physician scientist pathway? Because one of the things you allude to is that this is hard. And even when you're surrounded yeah. by communities of people who are doing this, there's still times when you're feeling low and you need more and you need encouragement along the way. And, and you alluded to the fact that it is different for, for, for people who identify as women compared to, to men in the academy. Can you speak to how we can support people better at the trainee phase and even as faculty? Yes. I think that first we have to recognize that this pathway of trying to have two jobs at the same time is difficult and anybody doing it knows that. And I think that outside of really living in it, really living that moment where you're writing a grant and getting a page at the same time and you have to make a decision, you know, is this an urgent page? Do I need to call somebody back? Oops, it's too late. My brain's already clinical. You know, how to do those two things at exactly the same time. I, I think first we just have to start with the recognition that it it's very hard. And with that recognition can then come sort of extra support. And for me, I had these funny moments along my training pathway where I sort of fell into some opportunities to get support that, okay, well, I could say fell into it or I could say earned, earned it, whatever, you know. So these moments in my training path where 
I was presented with opportunities that I seized. Let's say it that way. I love that. And, mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. And, and, you know, one of them, honest to God, it sounds so small, but very early in my postdoctoral training, I got to work with a technician. And I don't know that I would be sitting here talking to you right now if I didn't have that opportunity. And yes, it was me training another person. And yes, that person had their own long-term goals and why they had come to the lab. But for me, what it allowed me to do was I had a patient relapsing and I wanted to go talk to them about their treatment plan and my work didn't have to stop. Or I didn't have to be there. I was there until midnight plenty of times, but it didn't mean, oh, now I'm gonna have to be here until midnight because I can't even start my experiment until 5 p.m. It really meant, okay, well, here's somebody who I've invested a lot of time training. I've gotten that experience of training and mentoring someone. And also this is a person who it's very reasonable to turn to and say, let's come up with a plan for what your afternoon is going to look like. I need to make a small adjustment because of an emergency that's happening for the other part of my job. And that was, that was huge. It was a, it was great to be able to train someone. It was great to you know have that experience of mentorship. And it was hugely helpful for the type of clinical work I was doing to be able at an earlier stage than I think a lot of people get the opportunity to do to walk away from the lab at random times to do my second job. And right, I, I think that was a that was a really great thing to help keep me on this path, but it's so uncommon and it really is so variable from lab to lab. And we pay technicians so little that I don't think it would be, okay, that's its own problem, but in academics, that's its own problem. But I, I don't know that it would be you know, some massively huge investment to say, okay, what kind of clinical work are our fellows doing as they're trying to get postdoctoral serious scholarly research done? What would it take to say, hey, host laboratory, mentor laboratory, we're going to provide half an FTE worth of salary for a technician if you're willing to dedicate at least that half FTE to this fellow. And at some point, I actually just asked for that. I thought, I'm going to put my big girl pants on and say, hey, my leadership in my division, I really need this. I'm really realizing I need this support, this pair of hands in the lab to help me extend the work that I can get done during the day. Will you pay for that? And my leadership said, yes. And I was, I was very grateful. I was very surprised. I was very grateful. But that is not institutionalized. And I really think it ought to be thinking, how can we say, here's a person who's really proven through their commitment to this pathway that they want to be a physician scientist. What can we do to help them get there? rather than have these barriers that come with having two jobs. So I think that's, you know, it's kind of small potatoes cash that could really go a long way to keeping people in the pipeline in that critical fellowship period. Because I do think, you know, you can get through an MD, PhD program, or you can get through an MD where you're, you know, doing heavy focus on research and you have research opportunities in your residency training period too. And it's really that fellowship time, I think, where you see all your residency friends who didn't do fellowship training are out in the world making money and doing, you know, some version of nine to five, probably more than that, but, you know, some nine to five-ish kind of a job with more regular hours, benefits, all those good things. And you're still slogging away as a fellow in the lab and doing your clinical stuff. 
And, and the end is not in sight yet in a sense of, you know, you've got to work towards getting an early career award. You've got to get a K, you've got to get all these things under your belt. And then your fellowship colleagues finish and maybe they take a clinical job and you see, okay, well, not that their life is easy by any means, but their life now they're doing what they want to do. They've already gotten there and they're already sort of, they're seeing patients, they're contributing to that incredibly important aspect of patient care. And I'm still working towards my goals. And if we make that period of time easier, I think more people will stay on the pathway. And then of course, it's another funding thing is just, we need more support for these early career awards. And having a K award is so critical. And the K funding lines at some agency are not what they need to be. I really want to commend the NHLBI, if I can, they made a K99R00 pilot program that's specific for physician scientists. And I think recognizing this problem at that transition from fellowship to instructor stage, they said, listen, we're going to do a look back and we're going to judge you your competitiveness for this award based on time that you have done research in the past, for example, if you did a PhD and your commitment to this pathway. And we know that it's really hard in, the, in two years of fellowship to already have some big, huge, you know, first author paper that is, you know, in cell nature science or whatever other top journal in your field. But we really want to support people staying in this pathway. And so they've piloted this program for specifically for physician scientists. And I think we need more opportunities like that at other NIH agencies. You have crystallized <laughs> a problem just, I mean, just perfectly. I think one thing that, that is, is not always obvious to trainees on the journey is that for the most part, so for you, you did an MBA PhD. So there's PhD training in the, back, in the background of that, but nowhere near as much research training as your PhD only colleagues. And then when you look at the MDs where there's barely really any research training in any of that. There may have been time in the lab or time doing research, but not really research training for research leadership. And so here we are in the clinical space where we have from we go from intern to being a resident to being a senior resident, right, in those three or four years of our residency training. And there's never the expectation that one person is taking care of the patient by themselves, right? But then you get to the place of research and then it's like, well, you're on your own. I hope you can do all the experiments and still be a physician. Good luck. And it's not really realistic. And I think it's you alluding to something that I feel like the business world knows well. It's like, it, it, yes. I mean, it sounds bad to say leveraging other people's time, but it really is the way it is. It's, it's that what is the benefit of the physician who spends a lot of time pipetting where they could easily teach someone else to do that and really now enter into the thought leadership of leading the research program. And that's really what it's about. It's not about doing. It's about leading the doing. It's about thinking about the direction of the doing. And, and I think it is a missed opportunity to support people in that from the beginning, to almost wait for people to finally either succeed or fall flat on their faces and then judge them to be not capable. But really, how do we resource people so that they can succeed if that's what they want to do? And, and I do think that's a big gap. And, and, you know, I love your story of negotiating what you need. And I'm big on negotiation. I think we should ask for everything we want and then some. And, yes. and, but, but it's like, why, why did you have to ask for something that you should have gotten from the very beginning? Why isn't that baked in? And so there's opportunity for institutions to get up and, and really support people. If you want people to succeed in this endeavor, resource them to succeed. 
And and on our part, as we're moving forward, it's like, well, if we don't have what we need, we should ask for it, ask for it. And it's not always easy, but it's definitely, I think there's opportunity on both sides. I don't know if you want to speak more about that. This is such an interesting challenge because I really see as somebody who, you know, did a PhD and, and my PhD looked like the PhD of my PhD colleagues. You know, it was not any easier. It wasn't any different. I got to get my, some of my classes out of the way during med school time, but then I spent just as much as time in the lab as, you know, my colleagues did. And, and so that was hugely, it was a hugely useful experience because I got to think through how do you design an experiment? How do you ask a question? How do you des- design the experiments to answer the hypothesis that you've come up with? How are you going to make something out of proving your hypothesis right and wrong? How do you stand up in front of people and communicate your science effectively and write a grant? You know, so many things that you get the opportunity to learn in that phase. And I think especially when you get to your postdoc training that's happening during a clinical fellowship, it's it's hard if you've never had those experiences, you want to bake that in, right? Those are incredibly rich experiences that you need to bake in, but you also have to become the leader of a lab where experiments are being done. So you need to know how to do the experiments, but do you need to do those experiments yourself personally as the only person for years in a row? Uh, d- does that have have to be the system or can it be, okay, I'm, I'm putting my hands on this right now and I'm learning it and I'm mastering it. And then I will teach somebody how to do it and I will move on so that when that person has questions, I understand how this works. I understand the ins and outs of this. When I'm the lab leader, I can direct the questions. I can think about the science. I can do this, but I can also, you know, know how to point someone in the right direction experimentally, or I can hire a lab manager or a staff scientist who I can feel confident knows how to direct people in those things experimentally because I'm comfortable with it. And that is, it's almost that those two things are, you know, at odds with each other, that you want someone to really become a good experimentalist in that way and be able to you know, lead their people, but you want them to also be using the part of their brain where they can critically think about big questions, how to answer them. And if somebody has not had PhD training, you're asking a lot out of somebody in a very small period of time before you then have them have access to institutional or, you know, national fellowship awards to help support their additional time to foster that experience. And then throw in the mix that so many institutions are moving towards models where they want to de-invest from big pieces of equipment, complex pieces of equipment, lots of labs having lots of pieces of equipment by themselves to things happening in core facilities. That makes a lot of sense to me from the business world of why ask 100 labs to be replicating the same infrastructure and the same, you know, uh, every PI or every fellow or every, you know, lab manager takes a new person who comes into the lab and that person has to, you know, learn this over and over and develop from zero to expertise in, you know, some technical pipetting thing. Why don't we just put that expertise into a core group of people with a core set of instruments that are highly well-maintained with highly trained people and we'll get the work done faster. And so I, I think that's, great and it makes a lot of sense, but it also could, I see why people feel some concern about then saying, 
okay, well, welcome to the lab. Here's a technician. We're going to send most of your stuff to a core facility. And three to four years from now, you can run your own group. You're going to know exactly how to get everything done. And that's a simplification of, you know, that's a simplification. But I think there are some people who worry, is that what this end of somebody's training is going to look like? And are they really going to be ready to do all the things you have to do as a lab leader, as a physician scientist, where, you know, you can truly think about the science, think about the questions and know how to answer the questions and be critical of the data that people are walking into your office with. And I don't, I don't know how, I don't know what the right answer is, but I definitely see where there's, you know, some tension there. Absolutely. It's a lot of, it's, com it's complex. It's that you are, as a clinician scientist, really an emerging leader. That's who you are. And part of that leadership is, is getting your hands dirty and learning how to do it, is getting your hands dirty and learning how to do it so that you can support other people to do it. But if a lot of that getting your hands dirty is that the opportunity is not available, it's being siphoned away to another group, how do you do that and still become an effective leader that you need to be? And are we raising people who are disconnected from, from being able to do the good science? Like you're right, if all the data is being generated outside, do I have the training to be able to analyze the data and say, do I accept this? Is this real? Is this credible? Is this authentic? Is this quality data? And, and those are challenges. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that the answers are readily apparent. I agree. Yeah. I wonder though, it's like looking forward into the future, if you could have a blank check and fix like one thing, a major thing in this clinician scientist training pathway and, and faculty development pathway, what would that be? And, and why would that be the thing you choose? If I could get one thing to fix, I could fix one thing. That is such a tough question because we've got to fix a few. <laughs> uh, if you want to cluster them, that's okay. <laughs> No, I mean, not to be redundant, but I just, we just need more funding. You know, we just need, we need people to know, look, I've, you know, I, I think back to my time being a postdoc during the pandemic, I was getting up at 3.30 in the morning so that I could get to the lab by four for my shift because I had to be out of my bay by noon, you know, right at the beginning. I wanted to get the work done. I didn't want to not get the work done. You know, yeah. I mean, when you have somebody who's got the dedication who's got that commitment to this pathway, or you have somebody who's just coming with all this skill and all this intelligence, who wants to know what does it mean to be a scientist? And this is their first opportunity to do it. And the road in front of them is, okay, well, come work incredibly hard, have two jobs, have all the challenges that go along with being both a physician and a scientist, and the rewards, but all the challenges that go along with that and at the end of the day, you might, you might have done enough. You oh. might be able to access this funding mechanism that's just so critical. And you might have done all the things you need to be able to get an early career award from the NIH. And that's the, the gold shining light. And the pay line is whatever it is, 10%. So you know, asking somebody to stay committed to that pathway when they feel that, well, maybe I have a one in 10 or maybe a one in five chance of getting this award. That's a stepping stone in and of itself. That's not the, 
you know, guarantee that I'm not going to get scooped. And instead of having a nice, you know, cell nature science or my field blood, you know, in, in some, you know, high impact publication that I need to have in order to be marketable to an academic institution, uh, all these things have to line up. You almost have to be both, you know, intelligent, motivated, a great leader and lucky. And making that happen really requires a lot of working hours every day, every week, every traditional working day, and maybe some non-traditional working days as well. So good luck on your journey. And we'll see you at the end in a few years. And hopefully you've done enough to, you know, get this career award that you need. And we just have to fund more of those. We have to make it we just have to make it so that the path doesn't seem so improbable uh, that you would get spend all this extra time and effort uh, relative to, you know, people who choose a path where they have, and I hate to say just one job because it's not that being a clinician is easy or being a scientist is easy, but, you know, that you are really being asked to do so much to have two jobs at one time. And the end of the road is kind of can seem like a very improbable chance for success. And it's, it really, I think comes down to money. We've just got to fund more of those early career fellowship awards. I really commend programs like Burroughs Welcome, Doris Duke, you know, who are really recognizing that there are gaps that the NIH with the constraints that it has of not being able to come up with its own budget that, you know, with those constraints, there are gaps that need to be filled and are, are trying to step in to fill those gaps for exactly this time in, in physician scientist careers. Thank you, Julia. I think that this is like a call to the billionaires out there. This is why <laughs> we need funding and we need more support for physician scientists. It's important. It's the only way healthcare advances and it's hard. It is very, very hard. And as you say, it's almost like it's like, good luck. We hope we see you on the other side. Yeah, exactly. And, then, and there's, a, there's a cry about how there's such a shortage of physician scientists. And it's like, well, of course there's a shortage. It's very difficult. It's, it's hard to make it through. And so then that begs the question, Julia, how come you're still here? This is such a hard journey. It's been hard so far. The road ahead still seems hard. How is it that you're still here? What is keeping you in the game? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, for me, it's what keeps me in the game is why we are here as physician scientists is I get to come to the lab in the morning and think, okay, there's, there's questions I want to answer that part of my brain that I love using. I love coming to the lab. I love mentoring people. I love thinking about questions that need answering and coming to love grant writing and and all it entails, but really to synthesize your thoughts and say, am, am I on the right track? Am I answering questions correctly? What a fun way to spend your to spend your day. Young people coming through the lab who are never been in the lab before and want to know what doing science is all about. I mean, it's so satisfying. And then I just walk down the hall and I see, you know, children who I can help and I can help them right there in that moment. And I can look at the problems they're having and saying, is there something I can be doing back in the lab to help you with this problem? So I think about a patient who unfortunately passed away, who had a invasive fungal infection after having a really long period of not having any neutrophils. And it was so heartbreaking for so many reasons. 
but primarily because I think we could have cured that child of their cancer. And to me, that moment where we need more, we need to offer these children more. We need to offer these families more. We need to be able to look somebody with a new cancer diagnosis in the eye and say, you're going to be at risk for infections, but don't worry, we got this. We're actually going to fix that problem. So what, you know, let's focus on beating the cancer as aggressively as we possibly can. And, and I, I care for patients too, who just their whole life, they can't make neutrophils and the incredible impact on their quality of life, you know, having this fear from the time that your child is born, that at any moment they could have a life-threatening infection. I mean, we need, we just have to do more for these patients. We just have to. And being poised to contribute to the care of those kids and their families is really a special privilege. And I can't right now imagine doing anything else. Though, you know, I know many people take different trajectories in their, you know, long careers. So stay tuned. But but for right now, it's to really it feels like a privilege to have this job. Absolutely. And I love you light up as you're talking about this path and it's hard, but you're having fun and you yes. can see the impact in, in what you have the potential to do. And so it, it's really awesome. And it's interesting. It's like, yeah, this is hard, but it's like this drug. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to picture being without it for sure. Yeah. All right. So we are coming to the end of the show and I wanted to ask you if there is someone who is a clinician early, early, early on in their career and they're struggling and they're like, I'm not even sure this is worth it anymore. How would you encourage them? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> right. Because yes. How would I encourage them? Because it is really a hard pathway and there is that desire to not just tell people, well, the only right way forward is to be just like me. The only way that you will be a success at the end of the day is if you're doing exactly what I'm doing, because that shouldn't be true. And if somebody's really struggling, for me, I think it's a good opportunity to reflect and to say, well, why did you come to the lab in the first place? What brought you to the lab? What did you want to get out of your time, you know, coming to do a research project? And for some people, I've heard them say things like, well, I never got a chance to do research before, and I just wanted to know what it's like. And the more time I spend here, the more I really just wish I was in the clinic. You know, maybe that's a person who shouldn't, you know, keep pushing themselves down a path that they really are just feeling a pull away from. And the road ahead would be, I think for that person, very difficult, a very difficult road. But if somebody says something more like, well, you know, I really wanted to be able to, to think about problems that are impacting these patients that I care for. And I think somehow my project is not moving forward or I've moved far away from that or I, I got into the lab and I thought I was going to work on one thing and instead I'm working on another, you know, sit down and almost write like a mini grant for yourself, right? What do you want to do? What did you want to get out of this? What were your aims coming to the lab? And is there a way that you can now address those questions? You know, how can I help my patient who has sickle cell disease, who has alloreactive antibodies, and we don't have good transfusion options for them? 
you know, how, if that's what's keeping you up at night and you've gotten away from that question or you're not moving forward towards that question, just sit, sit back down and say, how can I get back to that? I've built almost certainly, if you've been in the lab for one or two years already, you have built skills. And if you feel like those skills aren't taking you where you want to be, I really wish young people could hear that the people training you want to know. They want to hear from you that you're having these doubts. They don't want you to go to apply for your K, for example, and put together something that's, you know, you don't even feel proud of, or you felt like it was fighting tooth and nail just to get it written because you're not passionate about what you're working on right now. You know, people training you want to hear from you if you're having these struggles and be able to say, okay, let me move you to a different project or, okay, let's, you feel like you haven't had a success yet. You know, here's this one thing that just needs to be completed. Let's get it done because this is up and running and working in the lab. And let's just have you put your hands on this to get some rejuvenation for a month or two, and then we'll come back to this. And I, I think a lot of people don't advocate for themselves in that way because they think they might come off as, you know, I, I don't know what, as weak or uninterested or like somebody it's not worth investing time in. And if somebody's accepted you into their lab, put you maybe on a T training grant and supporting your career development, sat through scholarly oversight committee meetings with you, like they're invested. They want you to succeed. So, you know, speak up if that's where you're, the mode you're at, not, I just wish I was in the clinic, but if your mode is more, I'm feeling stuck, I'm feeling, I'm spinning my wheels, I feel like I haven't gotten the experience I want to get, say something and I think say it as early as you can because you really don't want to be in a three-year fellowship at the end of year two in the lab, you know, at the end of your fellowship, asking for instructor time when you're not even sure if you want it. Wow. That's a lot to unpack in that answer. <laughs> I don't even know where to start, but I love what you talk about. I think what you're saying is you got to do what you love. And I know people say that and it's almost like a cliche. This is hard work. And if you're going to work so hard, please do something you actually care about. Don't yeah. do something that drains you because it's too hard to invest time and energy in something you don't even care about. And, and I, I appreciate what you talked about, the importance of self-advocacy, because sometimes there's this sense of like, well, I don't want my mentor to be upset with me, but it's like, look, this is not your mentor's journey. This is your journey. And right. years from now, your mentor is going to be out of your picture. And what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be that person who's so successfully miserable? And that's not worth that struggle. And actually, you may not even end up being successfully miserable because you just might not even get there. You're so miserable. Yeah. But but I do appreciate that. You know, it's it's almost cliche. It's like do what you love, but it's real. It's like don't do things you hate because it's just too hard to sustain a career that way. It's it's impossible, actually. Yeah. Well, and having a, an Eliza that you can't troubleshoot is very different than I don't like research. Yes. But when you've been on call because you also have a clinical job and you haven't slept for some period of time, and maybe you also have family obligations and you're going into the lab and you're just thinking one more day that I have to get this thing to work that isn't working. And I don't even know what I'm doing with my life. And, you know, my colleague is doing a chart review in their pajamas at home and having a great time, <laughs> you know, but really, I mean, and that's important work too, but you know, it's, um, I, yeah, I think it's very easy to get discouraged and to stay discouraged for two years and then your fellowships up. And then all of a sudden it's, well, you know, you told us you wanted to do lab. You never told us you weren't 
you know, you, that you were struggling and we didn't sort of move things around or come to a, an understanding of, well, maybe we need to shift your focus. Maybe you do want to do more clinical activity and now you're not marketable from a lab standpoint and you're not marketable at an academic institution that's going to expect hardcore clinical work to have come out of a fellow. And so nobody has been, you know, coming into a clinical position, they're going to expect that you've done hardcore clinical work during your fellowship. So nobody's helped by not speaking up. And, and yeah, I think really, I almost wish that in fellowship, you got a chance to rotate in a lab, you know, that you almost got like graduate students do mm. the expectation that you're going to spend six weeks somewhere, six weeks somewhere else and six weeks in a third place. And you're going to see what's the right fit for you. Mm. Because we, you know, we ask people to commit to mentors. They don't know them at all. They don't know mm. the lab environment. And this is the beginning of the rest of their career. Now you're in a field that you're, you know, going to be in that field for at least, you know, for the foreseeable future. And, and I think that's an interesting that we just ask people to sort of jump in. And <laughs> yes. So to our audience, if you are feeling miserable on your trajectory, you need an intervention and you can't yes. give it to yourself. You can engage your mentor or find someone outside of your mentorship circle, but please don't try to do it alone. Yeah. And build that. I wish I could come up. Maybe you know the name of this kind of map that you make. That's It's not a mentorship map because mentor is one word, but who are the people you're going to need different things from to support you on this? You know, you need a, you need a research mentor. You need a clinical mentor. You need a mentor to help you with the life part of doing this job. You need peers for peer support. You need a sponsor that is often, if it's also your research mentor, isn't that so great? It probably ought not to just be your research mentor. Um, you need a sponsor. You need someone who's going to open doors from you and you need role models. You know, these are different people who are going to give you these different things and you have to build that team for yourself. And there are these diagrams you can download online if you're a visual person where you then just, you know, fill the names in, really sit with it and ask like, who is in each of these buckets is my person. And in this moment, I'm having these feelings of doubt, you know, disconcert. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing with my life. Which of these people can I go talk to about this? And maybe I start with one person and move to a different one. Maybe I you know, meet with a peer first, who's a few years ahead of me, who might've had these same moments. Maybe I just bounce ideas off of them. And then I go to my research mentor or I, you know, I go to my sponsor and I say, do you think I have what it takes? You're someone who's been my champion. You know, do you think I'm, I'm a person you see continue to be able to champion in the future? What do I need to accomplish now? And how do I get to accomplishing that? So yeah, sit down and make a map for yourself and then reach out to those people. Absolutely. You speak to the importance of mentoring networks. I mean, it's like one person cannot be all of it for you. It's not it's even not possible. Don't yeah. do it. Don't it's don't not. try to make it fit. But yeah, no, that's this has been so awesome. Julia, I mean, just so much wisdom. I feel like we need to do like a part two because there's so much <laughs> that could still be said. I mean, you've just just shared so much wisdom. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right, everyone, you've heard Julia. You've got to share this episode with someone else. Someone is struggling and they need advice and they need to think a little bit more broadly about their mentoring networks. Think about that one person and forward this episode to them. All right, everyone, it's been a pleasure. Talk to you again the next time.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do health.